Welcome to the Upper Room Community Church Podcast. Wherever you are in your journey, we hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit us at upperroom.ca. Good morning, church. The scripture today is Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. It is the passage entitled, A New Heaven and a New Earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I, give, I will give water, without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Dave, and uh, I'm on staff here, and I'm really glad that you've joined us this morning uh, for part six of our Frequently Asked Questions series, uh, Jesus, World Religions, and the Questions That Matter Most is, is the subtitle. And really what we've been looking at for the past number of weeks is, uh, what are these kinds of questions that we ask, uh, these discussions that we find ourselves in? Perhaps we're asking them about ourselves, uh, but at the same time, maybe we're just you know hanging out with our friends over coffee, and, and the conversation comes up. And so what, what do we actually think about that. And, and, and what, are, what do other people think about all the things there are to think about, right? So uh, we're glad that you're uh, with, you, or with us rather this morning. Um, okay, how many of you have Netflix? Okay, that's almost like asking how many of you have a face? It's like, right, the majority of, yeah, I mean the majority of people have faces, the majority of people have uh, Netflix. How many of you uh, pay attention to the recommendations that Netflix makes? Okay, some of you are like, yeah, absolutely. Others are like, I am never going to admit that publicly. Um, okay, so for um, a number of weeks, maybe even months, Netflix was recommending to uh, Sandra and I a show called The Good Place. Have you heard of this show? The Good Place. Basically, I had wrapped up watching The Office for the eighth time in a row, and uh, it finally said, you need to get over it, man. Move on to something else. And I said, okay, reluctantly. And so I watched, started watching the show with my wife, Sandra, uh, called The Good Place. It stars Kristen Bell, uh, who plays a, a woman named Eleanor, and, and Ted Danson, uh, who plays a guy named Michael. And, and the first episode of, uh, of the first season starts with Eleanor in a waiting room. And she doesn't know exactly where she is. She looks a little confused, but at peace. Eventually, Michael comes and invites her into the office. And there's, the, there's, a, there's an office thing in there, right? If any, Mike, anyways, different show, just trying to, anyways. Um, Michael uh, invites Eleanor into his office and, and says, uh, she goes, well, where am I? What, what is this place? And he goes, Eleanor, you're dead. Your, your life on earth has ended, and you are now on to your next phase of existence in the universe. 
And Michael goes on to explain, well, the people who have had either a tragic death or an embarrassing death, they actually wipe your memory. So that's why she can't even remember why she's dead or how she got there in the first place. In her case, it was a very embarrassing way uh, that she died. So she actually cuts him off as he starts explaining it. And she goes, okay, well, um, who was right about all of this? Who's right about the, this afterlife is really what she's implying. And he goes, well, you know, uh, the Hindus were a little bit right, the Muslims were a little bit right, uh, the Jews and the Christians, the Buddhists, they all got it a little bit right, about 5% each. Uh, there was this one stoner in Calgary who in the 70s took a whole bunch of mushrooms and he went on a rant about what this was all about and he got it 92% right and he's actually a bit of a legend around here. He's got a picture of this guy from Calgary up on his wall. Um, and he says, you know, that really freaked us out. Like we were really, uh, we couldn't believe that he got it that right. And she goes, okay, okay, okay. So, so is this, is this, or, right? Is this, is this up or is this down? To which Michael responds, well, this isn't, it hasn't been the heaven or hell that you were raised up on. He says, there's a good place and there's a bad place. Eleanor, you're in the good place. You're okay. So she sighs a sigh of relief. I'm in the good place. She doesn't even really know what that means yet, but, but it's a good thing. They then go on a tour and as they're going around, Michael's explaining to Eleanor that the neighborhood she's in has been set up absolutely perfectly to match her and her personality and other good people that are like her. And so there isn't a blade of grass that's not where it's like every blade of grass is where it should be. Every ladybug he says is where it should be. Everyone gets a house to live in forever that matches their essence while they were on earth. And so Eleanor gets this kind of quaint modern little cottage where other people have these gigantic 5,000 room mansions. Um, as they continue to walk, he says, as a matter of fact, you're soulmate is even here. Everyone meets their soulmate in the good place. Um, and everywhere you look, they're just frozen yogurt shops because Michael says good people love frozen yogurt. So we had to include that in. And so the show continues. Eventually, in her, in her cottage, she's able to look on a screen and, and see every one of her memories from her vantage point. So she starts watching this, and that's when she realizes there's been a mix-up here. They might have the right name, Eleanor, and whatever the last name is, I can't recall right now, but they definitely have the wrong person. And she discovers that she's actually not supposed to be in the good place, she's supposed to be somewhere else. And of course, the, the story goes on and on and on from there. And, and I think one of the reasons it's so intriguing to us, I mean, there are a variety of shows that are about what goes on after we die, uh, you know, all these kinds of things, because there's something about it that intrigues us. Why? Because every single one of us will face death. So when we ask the question, what, what happens after we die? What, what does it feel like? What does it look like? Um, you know, we're kind of intrigued by this because there's this sense of it being inevitable, but at the same time, um, from an early age, we're taught, we're raised to believe that, that death is a bad thing, that death is a scary thing, that this life is what we know for sure. You can see, you can feel, you can smell, you can taste, uh, but what happens after, we're not totally sure. And so we want to know what happens, and that's why we like all of the different ideas and speculations that come. And yet, when it comes to this discussion of what happens after we die, what happens, uh, you know, is there an afterlife, all these kinds of things, we get down to some of the most personal types of questions we can ask because we've all known somebody who's passed away. And we've wondered, as we've mourned for them, we've wondered where they are or what they're experiencing. And then when we personalize this a little bit more, we actually wonder about our own lives. Uh, how does what I do today impact what may or may not happen later? Is there any consequence? Does it matter? And so when we talk about this question, I mean, all of the questions we've looked at in this whole series have been, I hope, kind of heavy questions that we need to lean into and be careful with because they're nuanced. But when we come to this one, there's something like, well, what does happen, right? 
Do you guys feel that? There's something about, about this question that we just want to be wise about. I mean, I mean given that um, death is something that all humans experience, or will experience rather, um, you know, in the history of forever, this has been something that's been experienced, that you, you, we can imagine that there's no shortage uh, of examples or explanations or theories about what happens when we die. Right, so for example, Neil deGrasse, Titan, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist and a science communicator, um, he, he says, well, uh, you know, we fear death because we're born only knowing life. We, we weren't conscious before we were born, so why is it so hard to believe that after we die, there's no consciousness? So in other words, he's saying uh, there's nothing after we die. There was nothing for us before we came to earth, like before we were born, and there's nothing after we die. Uh, Ricky Gervais, who's a comedian uh, and also an outspoken atheist, he says, uh, he was asked the question, what do you think it feels like um, after you're dead? And his response was, well, to the interview, he says, well, what did it feel like before you were born? Right? It's like, well, how, how could, we don't even know how to make sense of that. And he goes, I, I imagine it feels something like that. And so some would say, well, there's nothing after. There was nothing before, so there's nothing after. Why is that so hard to believe? Uh, others would say, well, okay, actually, I, I believe in reincarnation, which Vijay actually spoke at length about this uh, last week in contrast with the concept of grace. But, but reincarnation essentially being the cycle of physical death and rebirth. Okay, what, what Hindus refer to as samsara, and it's basically the belief that uh, the spirit, um, the Atman, is, is immortal. The spirit never dies, but the, f- but the physical, the body, does die. And so when the physical body dies, what happens is the spirit gets transferred into another being and is reborn. Now, sometimes that rebirth or that reincarnation happens uh, in another person, like as another human being. And if that is the case, then a Hindu believes that um, because you've been reincarnated as a person, uh, you learned something from your last life. And that's important because remember, this is a cycle of purification. Where others would say, you know, you can be reincarnated actually as an animal, which would actually then imply that you didn't learn something you were supposed to learn. And so you ought to be paying attention to what you're learning in each of these lives. So as you go through this process of of samsara, you can eventually get to the point where your atman, your your spirit, your essence, uh, is, is united with Brahman, the one true God, and then you achieve moksha, this paradise, this peace, and you're finally there. Others would believe in, in, in heaven and in hell, or a good place and a bad place. I'm going to speak a little bit more at length about these two ideas later, but, but the general concept behind all of this is that um, there's either eternal paradise, never-ending joy, or there's never-ending punishment, torment. Basically, you know, generally speaking, how pop culture, how we may have been raised to think, it pretty, pretty much puts them into these two categories. Really simply, if you did good on earth, then you receive blessings and gifts and joy forever and for always. But if you did bad on earth, then you get punished for that for the rest of time, uh, for whatever time is in the eternal realm. That, that would be the simple idea. Now, others would say, okay, well, actually, I believe that on the way into whatever our eternal destination is, there's actually something called purgatory, which if you lived a life that was morally, morally corrupt on earth, then actually uh, you're going to go into purgatory. And while you're there, other people can pray on your behalf or you can work to make amends for your own self that you will be purified to the point where God will now show compassion on you and transfer you from this uh, place to heaven forever. Okay. Others would say, well, actually, I don't know about any of this stuff, but what I think happens is I have a more universalist approach, which is that all people will be saved in the end. 
God in his compassion, God in his love, God will somehow find a way to reconcile all people and no matter what you did, no matter how, if you were good or bad or whatever your religion was, because how could we know, no matter what it was, in the end, God will show mercy and God will, you will be saved. And they take that to uh, an extreme. Now, like I said, as many people as there have been, there are as many views in terms of what happens in the afterlife. And so for some, it's a, it's a strong conviction or, or subscription rather to one of these things. Uh, for others, it might be a mix of all of them because there's something inside of it uh, that kind of leaves us satisfied, right? We have this sense of saying, well, there must be something else. Uh, or maybe there's nothing else. And yet, at the same time, even though it might keep us interested, um, it also leaves us wanting a little bit. And, and I think if we give all of these views the benefit of the doubt, one thing that we see is that they're all uh, trying to motivate us to live differently now. So some would say, well, um, live differently now because if you live good now, then you'll have blessing forever. And, and if you live bad now, this isn't great grammar, but if you, if you, if you live a bad life now, well, then you're going to be punished for that. So there's this, this motivation through reward or this motivation uh, because of punishment. Others would say, well, I don't believe anything happens, which means I can live however I want now and I'll just have to face the consequences in this, this life, but later on uh, they won't matter. And again, you may subscribe to one of these views or, or all of these views, depending on the day. You might subscribe to a combination of these views as you begin to think of it. Some of you might say, well, I don't believe in any of this stuff because how can anyone really know for sure? This is why, you know, people write stories about going to heaven and coming back and they make it to the New York Times bestsellers. Because whether or not we fully believe it all, we just want to hear something, don't we? Right? And so all of these different uh, theories, ideas, belief systems, religious ideas, they all give us something, but, but we have to say, well, how can we really know for sure? With all that is unknown, is there anything we can really know for sure? And so as we look at the ancient words that make up the Christian holy book, okay, that make up the Bible, as we look to scripture, we see that it actually has quite a bit to say uh, about life in general and actually about uh, life after death. And as we'll see later on, it actually talks about life after life after death. I know that seems maybe like a little three or four dimensional or five dimensional. We'll get there. Don't worry. Just stick with me in all this. Scripture has so much to say about it. And, and there are certain things that scripture communicates that I would say, okay, this, this, this is clear. But there's a whole lot, even within scripture, that makes us ask the question, well, that doesn't, you know, I don't know. This doesn't seem as clear. And so what we have to say is, well, with all that is unknown, with all the mystery that's out there, what is there that we can know for sure? And so uh, earlier, Martin read for us from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation, uh, a wonderful book full of beautiful uh, imagery and, and pictures and, and, and warnings and all of these kinds of things. And yet, one thing we have to real realize at the beginning is that um, this was a dream, a vision that John had. And so we have to actually be careful with how we interpret it. What is there that we can learn from and see that this is what it's going to be like? And what is there that's just image to make us wonder and stand in awe of who God is? And so uh, in the passage that was read, it describes this new heaven and this new earth. And it says that the first earth, that's earth life as we know it right now, has passed away. It's gone away. It's not going to be like that anymore. It's going to be something totally new, something totally different than what we already know. Then we're given this image of a holy city called Jerusalem coming down from heaven to uh, be joined with Jesus who's a groomsman as if there's like this wedding taking place between a city and, and a person 
right? And so we have to say, well, what is, what is that about? M- most people would say, or most you know, Christians would say, anyways, that this holy city represents um, all of the redeemed people that are in heaven. They, they actually join and are made, put in union with, in, in a perfect relationship with Jesus once and for all, not contaminated by, by sin or death or the disobedience or the things that we experience here on earth. Why? Because in the new heaven, in the new earth, there is no weeping. All, all the tears have been wiped away. There's no pain, there's no hurt, there's no sin, there's no death. And so finally, those who have trusted in Jesus and are in heaven can now have this perfect relationship with him, the one that we've always wanted. If you remember back a few weeks, we, we looked at this idea of why is it that I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I do want to do. Remember that? That goes away for those that are in the presence of God for eternity. And every person here is, is entirely satisfied. Uh, the, the word there that we read said that um, there is an endless flow of ever, like of this water that is everlasting life in this water. Like we just never, we have everything we need. And, and the old way of knowing life is all gone. The pain, the hurt, the relational discord, the death, all that's gone, there's something totally new. It kind of sums up in this verse. It says, those who are victorious, this is verse seven, those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Once and for all, this perfect harmony, this perfect union, this perfect relationship with God. Then there's this next verse, which we have to pay attention to as well. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So sometimes scripture does this to us. You're like on this roll and you have this beautiful picture and you're like, this is wonderful. I want to let my imagination run wild as to what this is going to be like. And then, but, you know, what? I don't need a but right now. We have this tendency and we could just skip over it. But actually what I think scripture is trying to do is make sense of the big question that we're trying to ask. What happens after we die? And this question underneath the question is, how does the way I live right now impact what I will or will not experience later on? The New Testament, all of Scripture really, but the New Testament in particular, has this way of answering questions or, di- or, or, or talking about things with a, a now and a not yet type of perspective. There are certain things that are experienced, that are known, that can be known right now. But there are other things that are a not yet. Those are things we would say, those are, uh, those are a promise that we're waiting on or things that we're hoping for, things that we're longing for. And when it comes to this question, we see that there's some now stuff, there's some not yet stuff, and there's some really not yet stuff. Let me, let me break all of this down. The language that we saw that kind of tells us about this now and not yet is new heaven and new earth, right? Implying that there's an old heaven and an old earth is kind of what's implied there. And then he also uses language like this is the second death or depending on your translation, it might say this is the second judgment. Well, what was the first one? Right now, there's certain things that have taken place and there are things that have not yet taken place. So what happens when we die? All people will experience this, every single person. When you die, when your body physically dies, when it stops living anymore, our spirit, because we're body and spirit, when this happens, our spirit and our bodies are, are separated from each other. 
And our spirit at that point in time continues on in the direction that it was already in while you were on earth. Which means, while you were on earth is body and spirit together. If you were living in relationship with Jesus, at the time of your death, your body goes into the grave or the mausoleum or the vase full of ashes, wherever it happens to be, whatever you do with your body. Um, your spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. Because that's the tra- trajectory, that's the, the relationship you were already in. Now at the time of your death, if you're not in a relationship with God or not following or, 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 or living in reverence with God, you've rejected God, then your body it goes in the ground wherever it went, wherever, however you were buried or however your body was processed and your spirit goes away from the presence of the Lord. I have to, I'm gonna break this down, okay? So first, someone who dies who is in union with God. Christ. Scripture tells us that their spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. What does it mean to be in union with Jesus? To be in union with Jesus means uh, you have uh, received the gift of life that he offers. It means you've said, uh, I can't live this life on my own anymore. I need uh, forgiveness. I need grace. I, I need your mercy. I need, I need you. I can't do this anymore. Jesus, uh, give me the life that you promised, the life that you offer. And when we put our faith in him, Jesus actually gives us his righteousness. Jesus gives us the eternal life, the, the never-ending life that only he had. He gives that to us as a gift. And we receive that and we have that. Uh, Romans chapter 6 uh, talks about this at length. This would be a good place for you to read this afternoon or perhaps in your home groups later. But it, it talks at length about this idea of what it means to be united with Jesus by faith. So uh, using the example of baptism in water, immersion into water, the Apostle Paul says, um, you know, when we're, when we're in faith, when we put our faith in Jesus, when we are immersed into the water, this is a symbolic of our union with Jesus in his death. Okay? Now, the most important part of a baptism is which part? The part where we pull them back up out of the water. Because if we kept them in the water, if you stayed in the water at the time of your baptism, if you were immersed in your baptism, where would you be? I mean, that's, a, that's I mean, well, that's where the question I'm trying to answer, right? The idea with being united with Jesus is that we're united with him in his death but we're also united with him in his resurrection. And he gives us the power to be resurrected one day. And Romans 6, 4 says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. So by faith in Jesus, somebody who is united with Christ, whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. Jesus goes and dies on a cross. And on the third day, he's raised, resurrected from the dead, showing that God is for real and keeping his promises and has power over death. And because we are united with Jesus by faith, we too have the hope of that resurrection, okay? So there's this right now, our spirit, those who are in Christ, the body stays in the grave, uh, the spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. We can be tempted to think geographically about all this, as if heaven has GPS coordinates, or an address. It's up or down, and it's north or south, or it's east or wherever it happens to be, but that's not really how how scripture talks about this. Instead, scripture kind of tells us, gives us this picture that heaven is the realm where God is. And so at this point, um, when when a believer dies, when a Christian dies, their spirit goes into the presence of God, wherever that is, but they still remain separate from their body. Okay, now this idea is what we would call an intermediate space. This is a theological kind of way of explaining part of this mystery. There is this separation that takes place, remember? Now and not yet. 
And so this whole idea of intermediate space could be new to you. The separation could be like an idea that maybe you haven't really considered before. Uh, but the big idea, especially if you're thinking now of somebody who you've known and loved that has passed away, and we have this in our head, well, they're in heaven and their bodies have been restored and they're running in, well, we can't actually say that because at this point, the spirit, yes, is in the presence of God, but the body is still wherever it was laid until later, now and not yet. And the beautiful thing is if we've lost someone that we love that, that was in union with Jesus, we, we can mourn because we feel the relational pull of, of losing them, but actually what awaits them is something even better than the incredible thing they have right now. And we have this to hope in for ourselves. And what about those, though, who uh, die uh, who are not in union with Christ. Same thing happens in, in one sense. The, the body goes where it was laid and the spirit, uh, it goes away from the presence of the Lord. And scripture uses a couple of words that might be familiar. You may have heard words like this, Sheol or Hades, in particular if you're reading in the Old, the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. Hades, or excuse me, Sheol is this uh, general concept for the realm of the dead. Um, the common grave of all who die, the abyss. Some would have believed that this is like a, a kind of like a black hole, kind of like it's an unknown, it's a mystery. Um, Hades, uh, again, is, is, is this other familiar word to us. It's actually just the ancient Greek translation of the word sheol, so it has the same meaning. Um, and then Tartarus, depending on the English translation you use, Tartarus is this ancient Greek word again that talks about um, this abyss, but it's actually tied a little bit into Greek mythology. So depending on which way you take that, there's a whole lot of different ideas you can get um, from Tartars. We are probably more familiar with the word hell, okay? Depending again on your English translation, you will see one of these words or you might see the word hell or you could see these words used interchangeably. Scripture was originally not written in English and so uh, scholars have gone through lots of work to, to interpret it and translate it into English language for us to understand. And, and so hell becomes this um, is this rather difficult concept to understand. And the reason for that is because when hell is referred to, when Hades or Sheol uh, or hell, when it's talked about in scripture, there's a whole lot of localized language that gets used. So when the Old Testament prophets are, are writing and they use uh, this word Gehenna, or even Jesus uses this in parts of uh, the gospel letters, the eyewitness accounts that were written about Jesus' life and teaching, they use this word Gehenna. Gehenna was actually a valley in Jerusalem, and it was a place where pagan worship took place. So pagan uh, people, pagans would worship uh, their gods by doing child sacrifices and all sorts of other sacrifices. And through, throughout the narrative of scripture, the people of God are told that Gehenna is this cursed place because that's where uh, idol worship takes place. Later on, it becomes this place where, where trash is put. And, and they put um, the garbage there and it, they would light it on fire to get rid of it. But it's this place where there's just endless amounts of garbage, endless amounts of rotting. There are worms and, and rodents and things that are constantly eating away at it. And it's on fire and it never burns out because humans have this issue where we never stop producing garbage. And so in the Old Testament, it was talked about Gehenna and people would have had this immediate thought in their mind, oh, that's not good. We don't know what exactly happens to those who are not in relationship with God at the time of their death, but if Gehenna is the, is the example, that, that's not good. And even Jesus, as he's talking about it in his time in Jerusalem, people would have looked at that and said, this is a place to be reviled. As a matter of fact, the, the prophets would have said, that is a cursed place. Go nowhere near that place because of what it represents. And it's language like that that is used to describe uh, 
What happens to those who are not in union with Jesus when they die? That's, that's where they go. And so um, in John chapter 3, John chapter 3 verse 16 is one of these incredibly popular verses. Um, God loved the world so much that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. It's a powerful, important verse with so much weight. We've got to keep reading actually because it keeps telling us more of the story. Later on it says whoever believes in the son, Jesus reiterating himself, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God will remain on him. So I'm going I'm to come back and circle back to this a little bit more in just a minute. But in the meantime, um, what I'm saying is that at the time of, of death, a person's spirit is separated from their body and the spirit continues on into the status of relationship it was already in at the time of death, either in relationship with God and into the presence of God or rejecting God and away from God. Our bodies are separated from our spirits. And so when you ask a follower of Jesus, um, is there life after death? There, there should be a resounding, yes, there is definitely life after death. And this is the most basic, at this point, uh, process of understanding the now. But remember, Scripture gives us this not yet category as well. This something else is going to happen. This other thing will eventually take place. And there's a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, and he refers to this concept as life after life after death. We have this tendency to be very, um, I'll use the word selfish, when it comes to thinking about this kind of stuff. What's going to happen to me? What happened to my loved one? What happened to this person or that person? We, we appeal to our own inner sense of justice. Well, someone dies and they lived a pretty good life, so hopefully, you know, everything's good for them. Or no, they were, I didn't like them, and hopefully they're, you know, in the bad place or whatever. We tend to think about it that way, but when Scripture talks about what happens uh, after death, this life, uh, this afterlife, or this life after life after death, um, it actually surrounds the whole conversation around who God is. Which, by the way, the entire story of Scripture is about who God is. We're in, the, we're in the mix of the story, but it's not about us. It's a God-centric book telling us the story of what he is doing, who he is, and what that is all about. So this, this life after life after death, the new heavens and the new earth, is something so much bigger, so much more, something so much more magnificent, something so much like unimaginable. We have some language that helps us get a picture, but we can't even process it because it's so god we can't understand God in his fullness. This is about bodily resurrection. This is about what takes place at the time when Christ returns and our bodies are reunited with our spirits. So from the very beginning of the story of Scripture, you can go back a couple of uh, talks in, in this sermon series, we can see that right from the beginning, God has always been a God of reconciliation, a God of restoration. Okay, so Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God creates everything and it's, it's wonderful. It functions according to its purposes and it's good in his eyes. But then in chapter 3, very early on in the story, rebellion takes place. Adam and Eve say, I don't trust you, God. Uh, I'm going to trust my own judgment. I'm going to trust myself more than I trust you. And, and when they do that, sin enters into the world. I'm, I'm speeding through this because we spent time, Vijay and I, the last couple of weeks. Sin enters this world and there's this infection, this death, this thing that, that just destroys us from the inside out. It has this power that we're at war with. 
And, and Adam and Eve uh, were naked in the garden. We're naked in paradise. And all of a sudden, at the time of the sin, they realize they're naked and now they're ashamed of this. And so they go and they take leaves from a tree and they cover themselves up. They cover their shame. What happens next? God has a few words to say to them. But the very next thing God does is he goes and he takes the skins from an animal which means that God sacrifices an animal, takes their skin, blood was shed, takes the skin, covers Adam and Eve. What is this telling us? That right from the time of this broken relationship, God is immediately working to restore that relationship, foreshadowing that there would be this sacrificial system of animals that need to be killed for their blood to be shed to make amends for their sin, which is all foreshadowing Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the Lamb of God of God is language we used to talk about him. The ultimate and final sacrifice. His blood being shed that anyone who believes in him may have this new life. God has always been a God of restoration. So when we think of the new heavens and the new earth, we're considering the ultimate culmination the, of the ultimate realization of God finally restoring all of us back to who we were meant to be. How does this happen? That's a mystery. Paul says, It's a mystery. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. Come on, Paul. Like, come on. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So at this point, in the not yet, which we wait for, which we long for, Those who hope in Christ will be raised to full life once and for all. Those who've gone to sleep are those are the people who are are currently passed away, spirit in the presence of God, body in the grave still. They will be caught up in the sky, scripture says. What does that mean? I don't know. It's incredible imagery. Caught up in the sky and be brought into God's presence into the new heavens and the earth, new heavens and new earth, restored body and spirit living the way we were meant to be but we will not all sleep, it says. Well, that means some people will be alive at this time and those who are alive uh, and, and united with Christ, they too will be taken to the new heaven and the new earth. And there we are in the presence of God. He's our God, we're his children, living the way we were always meant to live. Perfect harmony between our own body and spirit, perfect harmony in relationship with who God is, perfect harmony with, harmony with all other people, how we were created. Now, those who are not in Christ, are raised to what is called a second death or a second judgment. And this is the, this is the words that we actually saw in our passage earlier, right? Um, which is separation from God for eternity. And even within Orthodox, conservative Christianity, Christian uh, evangelical belief, there's a whole lot of ideas that go into this because of the unknown. But what scripture does tell us is that there is an eternity in the presence of God and there is a forever not in the presence of God. Um, And so those who have chosen to reject God, those who have chosen to live life for themselves, they continue on on the same pathway that they were already in on this phase of life. Right, Jesus uh, says this in Matthew 25 where he speaks at length about um, using this analogy and this imagery of what will happen uh, on the day of judgment. And he says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go away to eternal life. Well, what is the punishment? I don't know if there's smoke and sulfur and lakes of fire and all that stuff. I don't, I, we don't know exactly what that's going to be like. I don't know if it is an abyss, a black hole, but because we can't know all of that stuff. But what scripture says over and over and over again is that there is eternal death. 
death for always. It seems to me that there's no hope of the redemptive presence of God. And, and there is this sense of separation from him. And I think it's actually the actualization of all of the idolatry and all the pride and all of the selfishness and all of, the, all of those practices while on earth. Those things all come to be a reality. And actually, we've always known that those sins are the ones, those are the things that have always eaten us up from the inside out, right? So John in his vision in 20, Revelation 21 verse 8 gives us this list, right? The but, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice on and on and on, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur and this is the second death. Well, why does he give us this particular list? Right? I mean, something in this list is obviously saying it's not just about behavior, but it's about someone who has lived out these things their entire life and allowed it to destroy them to the point where they, they didn't even want to change. And, and so there's this continuation into this life of, of rejecting God and, and, and experiencing that in its fullness. And those of us who have been redeemed, who have trusted in Jesus, we, we know that we still fight with these things, right? Because I look at that list and I say, well, hold on a second. I lie. I don't want to lie, but sometimes I do the things I don't want to do instead of doing the things I do want to do. You know, I, I've been sexually immoral. And I still have that struggle in my daily life. Like, what, what, hold on a minute. What's the difference? The difference is those who are united with Jesus have already been judged. Those who are united with Jesus, Jesus has been judged on our behalf and we've been freed from those things. We've been justified of those things. But somebody who has rejected God will then at the second death face their own judgment for what they have done. Here's the thing. No one is in heaven because of anything they did for themselves. The only reason anyone is ever in the presence of the Lord is because they've trusted in Jesus and said, I am not enough, but you are everything. I believe in you. I have faith in you. I trust in you. I hope in you. And, and when scripture talks about these things, like I grew up in a church tradition where I was, I, I heard a whole lot about hell. I heard a hell of a lot about hell growing up. But every time it was, it was, it was yelled at me, it was used as a threat. And I don't see scripture anywhere using it as a threat. I see scripture talking honestly about it being a reality, but talking about it in the context of a warning or in the context of an appeal. I, we want to tell you that this, like I wish I could tell you this stuff wasn't real. My conviction is too strong that scripture and the story of God makes it clear that there is an eternity with him or an eternity separate from him. But, but it's not to threaten anybody to act right. Rather, it's to make this appeal that this can be escaped. This doesn't need to be a reality. Jesus says about himself, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever, believe, who lives, excuse me, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He's saying, I am going to be resurrected from the dead. And when you trust in me, when you're united with me, you too get this resurrection. And I love how he asks the question. I, I didn't put that in. Jesus says, do you believe this to the people in front of him in the room? And, and here, I'm asking the same question. Jesus is asking us the same question. Do we believe this? That it's not us earning our way up there, but it's us submitting ourselves to Jesus. Because he was resurrected from the dead, we put our hope in him. And, and then there's this new heavens and this new earth, right? Revelation 6, 21 verse 6 and 7. Jesus says, on this moment, it's done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. It's finished now. At the, at the moment when, when this trumpet sounds and whether that's audible or whether that's poetic, I don't know, but there's something that's coming. The not yet, we're waiting, we're longing for it. When that takes place, all those who are united with Jesus go into the new heavens and the new earth where God is with his people. Picture that. There's no discord. There's no, nothing's broken. Everything is perfect the way it was meant to be. No sickness, no decay, relational harmony. Our bodies and our spirits are, are reunited. We're able to relate to God perfectly, other people perfectly. And we actually find the justice and the mercy that we were always longing for as long as we've been here. All, all this tension that we feel as people who follow Jesus, who are living out our new life now, but really not feeling like it's too lively sometimes, it's now realized N.T. Wright, the same writer, says in his book, Surprised by Hope, he says, God is the creator and his new world, the new heavens, the new earth, will be exactly what we need and want with the love and beauty of this present world taken up and transformed. So the beauty and the good that we see in this world, it doesn't all go away and it's completely different, but it's all, it's tr- it, it itself experiences a type of resurrection, it seems. You know, and it is made new, which means for those in the room who are in Christ, who are united with Jesus, you're already living your eternal life right now. That's an important thing. We're not just waiting for the moment we die physically to go and get our eternal life. We've already got our eternal life, which means we can live absolutely differently than every other person because what do we have to fear? We can radically obey Jesus. We can do the things he asks us to do. We can worship him with, 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 uh, with, with total freedom, knowing that they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. And my, our soul is already made right with Jesus. We've got this eternal life now. So many Christians treat this idea as, you know, like a get-out-of-jail-free card or fire insurance. You know, this idea of, well, you know, I, I prayed a prayer and uh, I've got, you know, Jesus got my back and I'm just going to live however I can do it. I want really. And, uh, you know, but, but the guarantee is that I'm going to go to heaven one day. And I don't know how the grace of God works. I think it's probably way better than anything I could ever imagine because I'm far too critical and judgmental in my own soul. Jesus is still f- doing a lot of work there. It's going to take a long time, right? Um, but there is this sense of knowing that we long for the new heavens and the new earth, knowing that we already have eternal life, we start living as if we're there right now. So the good that will be there, we start doing everything we can to usher that in here. We don't wait for a day when, when all of the lonely people will have friends in heaven. We start being friends to the lonely people now because we're citizens of heaven. Our passport doesn't say Canada on it. It doesn't say earth anymore. It says heaven, right? We, we, we give money radically and generously. Why? Because we know that it's being used to help people that are sick. We, we join in the joy of bringing what we hope for in the future to make it a present reality even right now. We do this by God's grace and his power at work in our lives. There's so much to hope for. It's not this escape plan and you know we can go hide out in a bunker until the trumpet sounds. It's nothing like that. We're out and we're active and we're living as if it's true. Why? Because it is. Because it is. There's so much to hope for in this new heavens and this new earth. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. 
And uh, we're going to sing a song called In Christ Alone, which is the only fitting song, it seems, that we could possibly sing at this time. And, and there may be a couple of responses happening uh, in this moment. Some of you uh, may want to belt it out. In Christ alone, my hope is found. It's not me. It's not anything I've done. It's only in Jesus that I'm united with him and receive from him the life that he gives. Others in this room are maybe wrestling with this intermediate space idea, and that's just a whole idea, a concept that you're needing to just uh, pray about and, and reflect on. Others in the room are saying, I'm not in unity with Jesus. Others are saying, I, I've re been rejecting him, but I'm on this journey maybe to learning to accept him. And, and perhaps you need to come and have a conversation with any one of us that have been up here. There'll be a few of us over by the welcome table, others to pray. Come and say, okay, what does it mean to be united with Jesus? What does it mean to be able to hope for and long for um, um, this new heavens and this new earth one day, to be in the presence of the Lord forever. So whatever you need to do to respond, to stand and raise your hand, to bow and pray, to sit and just reflect on the words, to open the box, whatever you need to do, this is a time for you to do that. Jesus, you are our hope. We know it's not us because we try and we try and we try. And it just seems like we're taking one step forward and 10 steps back. We feel stuck. And so we know that we can't do this on our own, Jesus. Those in the room that follow you and trust you know that. Those that don't know you and are just exploring what it means to have a relationship with you are, feel that as well. So God, as we think about this question of where do we go when we die, pray that nobody in the room would think about this is something that we just need to think right about and it's not really that important right now. I can think about it later because there is a direct connection between what we hope for and what we're promised later and how we live now. So God, I pray that some in this room would trust you today, would say, Jesus, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. And because you were raised from the dead, I know and have confidence and hope and faith that when I die, that's not it for me. That I too will be resurrected. I pray, Lord, for those in the room that have trusted in your resurrection, that you would renew unto all of us the joy of your salvation, what it means to be uh, your child, what it means to be one who has eternal life now. Show us the ways we can interact with the people around us and the community around us, in this church, in our schools, in our workplaces to be people who hope for a new heavens and a new earth and do everything we can to give hope to people right here, right now as we wait and long for the promise of that day. So God, we sing to you now. We pray to you now. We think about you now as an act of worship, as an act of reverence. And we love you. I pray this in your name, Jesus, for your glory. Amen.